From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. After stunning the college basketball world with their shorthanded domination of Tennessee, the men's basketball squad continued its momentum with strong performances against Georgia and Tennessee, quickly becoming one of the hottest teams in the SEC. On today's show, we'll convene FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter for a roundtable to discuss the streak in Gators, the reveal of the 2021 football schedule, more coaching carousel news, and what should and shouldn't be considered when it comes to Hall of Fame criteria in the PAT. Then, versatile transfer Anthony DeRuji joins us to talk about getting his first bite of basketball in the Big Apple, transitioning to the SEC, and much more. But first, basketball games are essentially a series of runs, so it would make sense that seasons follow a similar trajectory. With the Gators really hitting their stride in the last week, we began our roundtable with Chris and Scott by finding out what's working so well for Mike White's team at this moment in time. I don't know if I can pinpoint it exactly, but um, they're shooting the ball well, and they have been shooting the ball well all season, Adam, and I think adding to that is just more of a commitment, an overall defensive commitment and more of a defensive – and more of a commitment – uh, on the rebounding side, now they shot the ball 52% in the in beating Vanderbilt. But I, I, I mean, obviously, uh, Mike White wasn't happy with the result of that game. I mean, just inside 10 minutes, you're up 22, and there's 37.7 seconds left in the game, and it's a four-point game, and you're shooting free throws and you know trying to hold on uh, in a one-on-one situation. So um, the closeout attempt at that game was not good. Uh, Vanderbilt slapped a. Uh, a variety of full court pressure on them, and they and they they didn't handle the ball very. Well. There were some there were some bad turnovers. There were some missed passes. There were some uh, uh, needless fouling. I mean, it was a weird game with relative to to foul. Florida didn't shoot a free throw in the whole first half. They didn't. Mm. I don't think they shot their first free throw until about 16 minutes left in the game. Um, Florida wasn't in the bonus until inside two minute or inside three minutes to go. Uh, I believe in the second half of the game and Vanderbilt shooting free throws and coming back and woodling away. I think it was a 34 to 16 run that got it to uh, uh, four points. Mm-hmm. But um, just to go back to your original question, what are they doing? Well, I mean, they're balanced. Okay. You know, I have five guys in double figures tonight. They're the guys I think are carving out a role for themselves. We know we know what Trey Mann's role is. Trey Mann is going to handle the ball a lot. He's not the, you know, he's a, he's playing point guard, but I don't think he's any more of a point guard than Tyree Appleby is. Tyree Appleby had a very good uh, floor game tonight with 12 points and six assists. He makes big free throws in the clutch. He's probably their best free throw shooter. Um, but Trey Mann is a scorer. He can, he's a guy who can go get his own shot. Tyree Appleby is a guy who can drive and get his own shot, but he's also just as likely to drive and kick the ball. Noah Locke, um, I think, was trying to do some things earlier in the season that maybe he's not ready to do or – 
not the best thing for him to do relative to trying to create some stuff for himself. That's not his game. His game is floating on the perimeter and getting some shots and every now and then taking the ball into the paint and hitting floaters. Um, you look at the box score from this game, uh, 15 points for Trey Mann, 12 for Noah Locke. Castleton had no, didn't score in the first half. He came in and had 13 points and five uh, rebounds in the second half. He knows his role. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think we're in a different place. Uh, this team is in a different place than where it was when it walked off the court against Kentucky, utterly uh, bamboozled about what, what had just happened in that game. They went to Mississippi State. They got destroyed uh, in the paint in that game. They got out-rebounded by 21 and out-pointed in the paint by 22. And really just, as we talked about last week, totally flipped, the, flipped that uh, script on Tennessee of all teams um, uh, just a few days later. One at Georgia in a game that had a little bit of similarities to this one last weekend in that they had a big lead and Georgia came back and won. It wasn't as dramatic, I think, as got it down to four. But, you know, Georgia got it down to double digits and had the ball a little bit. But in totality, you take this, what this team has done, in having to remake itself, not once when Keontae Johnson, in losing Keontae Johnson, but again with Scotty Lewis uh, missing the last four games. Welcome back. He had a kind of return to the floor today with 10 points all in the first half. But now he's kind of figured some stuff out there. They've thrown out what was kind of a basic dribble drive offense. And they're, I, I think they're moving the ball better. They got some things they got to handle defensively. They have a tendency to foul too much. And, and I thought they, we're kind of getting away from that. They certainly were doing that early on in the SEC season, and they did it too much uh, against Vanderbilt Wednesday. But, you know, all in all, you can sit there and nitpick at something, but they've won three straight. They're tied for second with LSU for in the Southeastern Conference. Alabama appears to be running away with the league for now. But uh, compared to where this team was uh, two weeks ago, um, I think Mike White's got to be happy now. They got a juggernaut of a, of an assignment this weekend but it's three straight games this team's nine and four and it's six and three in the sec that's an okay place to be uh when you consider what this team was dealing with a month ago and what it has been dealing with since uh december the 11th uh at florida state with keontae johnson well it's funny too because just as they find their stride in the sec now they step out of that to go play west virginia <laughs> yeah, right, in this right. big 12 sec challenge so what does the next week look like and what does Florida take away from what they've done to try and continue this momentum with the uh, upcoming opponents? Well, I mean, well, West Virginia is, is just a, a, an incredible uh, challenge. They're 11th in the country. They're going to, year in, year out, they play as hard as any, any team in the country. They're going to be fabulous on defense. I think they just beat uh, Texas Tech uh, Monday night, a good Texas Tech team in, in a real good game. So, uh, obviously, it's a very, very battle-tested team. It's going to be very difficult to play at West Virginia. Probably not as difficult as it would normally be with right. whatever the COVID restrictions are going to be, but you know, a, a good challenge. It's going to be a, a you know, if, if Florida can just play them close, you know, and gain some confidence with a tough uh, un, uh, an opponent you don't know on the road, they're going to get some RPI points with it uh, on their strength of schedule as well. So mm-hmm. um, it's a kind of game that you know, if you aspire to be an NCAA tournament team, you go on the road and you put yourself in a position to see what happens in the last uh, you know eight ten minutes of the, of the basketball game. Uh, after that, they got to turn around and go play South Carolina next week. South Carolina's a one loss record isn't very good. They had about a month where they didn't play basketball at all because they had to pause because of COVID. But I mean, 
we're going to sit here and have a conversation you, right after you play West Virginia, who you know is going to be physical, who you know is going to get up on you defensively. Now you got to go play Frank Martin's team. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, not, not fun. You know, so so they have their work cut out for them the next week, but they put themselves in position where they have a little bit more of an identity, I think, than they did two weeks ago, and take a three-game uh, win streak up to Morgantown and and see what happens. It's a it, it's as difficult a challenge as there is uh, in this uh, SEC Big Twelve challenge. But uh, Florida had actually done pretty well uh, in these things. At one point, they were four and one. They've lost the last two, however. So they'll look to get back on the winning track, but I'm sure Bob Huggins remembers coming here mm-hmm. in 2016, and I think uh, Florida hit 16 threes in that game. I do remember after the game he was shaking his head, and an assistant coach, Darius Nichols, played at West Virginia for Bob Huggins. And he, he goes, they hit so many threes. He goes, I think even Darius hit a couple from the sidelines, <laughs> and he can't shoot threes. So um, so that it's a homecoming for Darius Nichols and a huge challenge for uh, for the Florida basketball team going on the road face a team like West Virginia. Well, it may not be football season, but it's always football season in the SEC, and there's there's always news trickling out that uh, that keeps the machine going. But but this week, Scott, we had the uh, the reveal of the SEC's 2021 football schedule, which is uh, a cause for celebration among those who uh, listen to Paul Feinbaum every day. But uh, people may not be aware this is happening if they're not super tuned in. And for the Gators, their opponents were all known the question was, how will they lay it all out? And I think that the thing that, that's grabbing most people is the way that it starts. Because you've got FAU and Gainesville to open. Then you go to USF and Tampa. Then you come home and, oh, look, Alabama is in the swamp. That's certainly the one that caught most people's eye. Yeah, the Gators, they don't get a pop quiz in 2021, Adam. It's straight <laughs> to the finals week, man. Uh, you got the defending national champions in your SEC opener in the swamp. We still don't know about fans and stuff like that related to the coronavirus pandemic. But just the matchup itself, a great test for the Gators. I mean, they showed something to a lot of people against Alabama and the SEC championship team but or a game. But that's that's irrelevant this time because so many of those pieces for the Gators are gone. You know Alabama is going to open next season right at number one or two as always. And unless Nick Saban finally decides to uh, – retire and live on that lake house up in Georgia in the next few months, <laughs> you know it's going to be a, a just a tremendous uh, challenge for the Gators to face. But it's going to be a great barometer right from the gate, Adam. And, uh, you know, I was thinking Alabama has not been to the swamp, I think, since 2011. Uh, so it's been a while. Uh, that was the first year Will Muschamp. I still remember the start to that game. Mm-hmm. John Brantley hits that long touchdown pass, I think, to Andre DeBose. The place was going wild, and then it got ugly. So, And then it went straight downhill from there. The schedule is like a, a roller coaster in ways because you have that Alabama is obviously the peak, and then it goes Tennessee, Kentucky, Vanderbilt, a three-game stretch that you know looks pretty favorable for Florida. Then going into that bye week before Georgia, LSU – in Baton Rouge. Now, LSU, hard to say what they'll be in 2021 because what they were in 2020 it was drastically different from what they were in 2019, uh, but it's always tough to go to Baton Rouge. And if you look at that stretch right there, Scott, LSU on the road, then an off week, then Georgia and Jacksonville. Uh, if Florida is going to win the SEC East again in 2021, it seems October 16th through the 30th will basically determine whether or not that's going to happen. Yeah, those games are huge. And, you know, depending on what 
they do early against Alabama, that could be a huge boost or, you know, it could put them in a, a hole to start climbing from. Uh, but the LSU matchup, you're right, it looms large, always coupled with uh, Georgia in that usually October range. But, you know, those are the, you just don't know what LSU is going to be. I mean, I think they'll be better in 2021. But, of course, they were good enough to come to Gainesville last season and pull off an upset and kind of spoil the Gators' season. So you can bet those Gators who will still be around for that matchup in Baton Rouge that you shouldn't have to fire them up too much for that game. And then Georgia is Georgia. One thing I like about the schedule is you look at it out of from top to bottom, and there's good storylines all over the, the rival games. You know, you got Alabama we've talked about. Tennessee, you know, the news earlier this week that Josh Heupel has left UC, UCF to take the Tennessee job. So that will be him coming back uh, into the Sunshine State, finally getting a, a matchup with uh, the Gators. Uh, we know – we know that how that played in the news cycle a couple of years ago with him and Danny White. So that will be fun. Uh, don't need any explanation for LSU or Georgia. And then, hey, guess what? He got Florida State back on the schedule, Adam. That was a game that, you know, was not on it in 2020 uh, for obvious reasons. But it's always good to get that game back on the schedule. So you, you've got the SEC power in Alabama. you got the traditional – Rivals in the East, topped by, you know, Tennessee and Georgia. And then you got your in-state rival against uh, Florida State. Oh, yeah, you play USF for the first time since, mm -hmm. I think, 2010 uh, when they came up to Gainesville and Urban Myers last year. Uh, so, you know, you get them back on the schedule. So it, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, schedule. And I think as we go forward, Adam, these schedule uh, releases are going to be more and more are filled with good games because we all know that's where that's what college football fans have voiced. That's what they want. That's what will keep them coming to the stadium. And obviously the ADs and the, uh, the sports uh, TV execs, that's what they they're wanting. So uh, I like these schedules filled with good games. Yeah. And some other early interesting games just overall, uh, Alabama plays Miami and Atlanta uh, that's on the opening weekend of the season. Georgia will play Clemson and Charlotte. That'll be a good one as well. Uh, LSU plays UCLA. That's a little bit different. Yep. Uh, and then another one that I didn't even know this was happening until I saw this in the schedule, but it just, it's, it's kind of jarring because it's weird. Uh, but how about Penn State versus Auburn? That's a thing that's happening the third week of the yeah. season. So I like that game. If I remember correctly, they met in the Citrus Bowl one time. Uh, years ago, if, if my memory serves. But, yeah, I love those games. And you, you, to me, you can't have too many of those games. And I know some fans will say, oh, man, Alabama, that's a tough game. That's a loss right off the bat. Well, you know what? You still got the whole season to play back in if you do lose. That's what the playoffs are for, you know, to get back in contention. So uh, you'll never hear me complain about tough games. I love them. And I, uh, I'm excited about what, what Florida's schedule looks like uh, next season. And, and it's really home-heavy early. Hmm. So the Gators will have a chance to kind of work out some of the kinks in the, in the uh, friendly environs of the, uh, the swamp, Adam. Yeah, three of the first four in Gainesville. Uh, and even the second one is in Tampa. So not leaving the Sunshine State until going to Kentucky uh, the first weekend of October. In terms of uh, what the Gators will look like when they go there, we don't know a lot of that at this stage. Uh, we do know that the coaching carousel has continued to turn in the last week for Florida, and it started with one coming in and then an unexpected one 
goes out this week, Scott. Yeah, we'll start with the guy coming in, Jules Montanar, who is going to be – he's one of the new defensive assistants uh, joining Wesley McGriff. Those two guys, their titles haven't been formally announced by Dan Mullen, but obviously they're going to coach in the secondary in some capacity on the defensive side. I'm not for sure what their exact um, duties are going to entail – but uh, both of those guys have a lot of experience with secondary. And, you know, in Montanar's case, uh, I think he's a younger guy, 35, who will be looked to be one of their best recruiters. He was the Sunbelt Conference Recruiter of the Year a couple of years ago when he was at Texas State. He, he's worked most recently in the SEC at, Alabama, or at uh, Georgia. First connected with Smart uh, in 2012 and 13 at Alabama as a young graduate assistant. One thing, just researching him this week, that I kind of found interesting, you know, he, he was at Purdue as a graduate assistant, really just early in his career. And he saw the job at Alabama, an analyst, uh, defensive analyst position that Nick Saban has kind of made popular in college football over the last decade. So he, he applied uh, Kirby Smart was one of the decision makers. They finally got down to the final decision and uh, Linda Leone, Saban's personal secretary, had talked to uh, Montanar several times on the phone as he would check up on the job, uh, the status of the job. And uh, she said, hey, this guy, he sounds like a go-getter. You might want to consider him. <laughs> he gets an interview, gets the job, and then once he gets to Alabama, those analysts get assigned a certain assistant coach to work closely with. Well, it so happened he got assigned to Nick Saban, who at that time was still coaching the Alabama's cornerback. So <laughs> – what a great experience for him. So, uh, you know, obviously he's he's done bigger things since then in terms of worked at a James Madison at Texas State that year at Georgia I mentioned in this bit last season at USF in Tampa as the recruiting coordinator as well. So uh, he'll have a rematch with his old his old guys uh, early in the season. But uh, I think it's a position, you know, that they had to fill after uh, the exits of Ron English and Torian Gray. And now they got McGriff and Montanar on the radar. And, uh, you know, Montanar is a guy that a lot of people didn't know much about him uh, before he got hired, including me. But you look at his background, and he's he's done some things. He's also from Florida, so he knows the state, has recruited here well. And that's always going to be key when you're hiring a new coach. Well, and then in terms of the, the outgoing coach, uh, Brian Johnson, who's been with Dan Mullen, uh, for a really long time. Uh, he's getting an opportunity at the NFL level, which again, most guys, as we talked about last week, when those opportunities are there, they're hard to pass up. Well, if you've been reading the tea leaves of Brian uh, for about the last two months, you knew that you know he was going to get some opportunities. He interviewed for the South Carolina job, he interviewed for Boise State, and now it came out you know, this week that the Eagles plan to hire him as their quarterback's coach, so he's actually going to the NFL. And, you know, Just in my time around him and from what I've gathered from him, obviously a very smart guy, was an excellent player uh, in college at Utah. And then he's been in Dan Mullen's coaching tree really uh, since he was a young coach, played for Mullen and Urban Meyer, or actually was recruited by them out of Utah way back uh, in the early 2000s. And now he's uh, getting a shot at the NFL. And uh, he did great things with the Gators. You know, they made him offensive coordinator last year. Uh, that really boosted his career. Then the offense goes out and has a record-set season. Kyle Trask puts up uh, school record numbers. So Brian Johnson's star is shining bright, which catches the attention of other people. And opportunities came. And, uh, you know, you hate to see him go because, I, I mean, he, he's 
He's obviously done very well for the program, but I think in a big picture, Dan Mullen is a pretty good quarterbacks coach himself. He's a very good offensive coordinator himself. You still have John Hevesy and Billy Gonzalez, who know the system, who have called the plays, who has worked as co-offensive coordinator. So I'm not for sure where that will go long term. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, they'll be, they'll be fine. But at the same time, wish Brian Johnson well. And uh, I'll be curious to see what he does up with Philadelphia because he has, what, a couple of young quarterbacks to work with in Jalen Hurts and Carson Wins. Mm-hmm. When Jalen Hurts would really match the the model of the kind of quarterback that Mullen and Johnson had so much success creating. Uh, when you look at everybody from Dak Prescott, Nick Fitzgerald, etc., um, that's really I and mean, that's that's their sweet spot. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I want to turn our attention out of the PAT, and it's a, it's about Kurt Schilling, but not so much about him as opposed to the idea that he presented this week. So for the first time, and I don't know how long. Um, nobody reached the level that you have to hit to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. You need 75% of the votes, and no one got that. The closest was Kurt Schilling, who I believe was at 71%. And Kurt Schilling said, which was kind of odd at the time, he said, you know what, I want to be off the ballot next year. I don't even want to be on there anymore. And you wonder, well, why would someone say that? And the reason why is because Kurt Schilling feels that the reason he's not in the Hall of Fame is because the writers are holding what he's done off the field against him. Kurt Schilling has been a very controversial guy. He has controversial views that have gotten him fired from multiple high-profile positions. And what he's saying is, you know what? I don't want it to seem like I'm not getting in on my merit. I think I'm being blackballed personally. So take me off this list for the writers and then let the committees down the road decide if I should be there or not. So this isn't so much a question as for whether or not Kurt Schilling should be in the Hall of Fame, but moreover, should athletes have their off-the-field conduct considered in whether or not they do make their sports Hall of Fame? This one bothers me a little bit because uh, I understand the dilemma with these steroid guys. And to some degree, I understand um, the dilemma with Pete Rose, although I think Pete Rose is has, has served as penance and probably should be, should be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, if we're talking about leaving a guy like Kurt Schilling, who I remember just being – he was awfully nails in a lot of postseasons, if I remember. Yeah. Um, uh, leaving him off the ballot because of, of his political beliefs, is that really where we are now? I mean, that's insane. I, I mean, I read some crazy stuff about how he's a – I mean, he's a, he collects war memorabilia and he has some, and he has some, uh, 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 third Reich uniforms and stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's, that's weird stuff. Okay. I, I wouldn't want him in my house, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't be in the, in the, in, in the house that houses the greatest uh, baseball players of all time. I mean, that, that, that's ridiculous. I mean, I read somewhere, I think his numbers average out to about a 15 and 10 career, but taking to consider some of those hall and hall of fame's, Everyone has their own kind of, you know, how, how they define that. Right. And I think Hall of Fame definitions have to really take into consideration uh, defining moments of a career. And Kurt Schilling won some awfully big games and, some, and was in some awfully big moments uh, 
that are embedded in your head, whether it's, I think it was Diamondbacks beating the Yankees in the World Series after 9-11. And of course, the, you know, the bloody sock is... is it's legend. It's as indelible as a, as a memory of, of baseball in a long time. And hmm. uh, I, I just, this just doesn't feel right to me. You you want to hold hold up a stand a, a different standard for for the steroids. I I completely understand that. But just something of, of who a guy voted for and and what hat he wears or what t-shirt he's wearing at a game. I mean, I, uh, you know, and, and yes, he has said some crazy things, but um, let's kind of remember what he was as a, as a baseball player and, and move on from that. I, I'll be interested to hear what Scott has to say. It's very debatable. I'm kind of mixed on this one, Adam, just because I, it's, it's really, to me, it should be what they did on the field. Because if you go back in the history of, especially the baseball hall of fame, because it's been around so long and, and you look at the, the first many years of the people who got in, I mean, they played at a time when a lot of stuff that gets reported today didn't get reported back then. Mm-hmm. They also played at a time when baseball was segregated and it wasn't by accident. It was on purpose. So, uh, you know, you, you, can, you can argue either way. To me, it's always going to be what happens on the field. Like, you take Kurt Schilling, for instance, I mean – I look at his stats, and he's certainly in the conversation. I don't know if he's an automatic Hall of Famer, uh, but he, he's worthy of serious consideration. Uh, would what he does off the field keep him off my ballot or not voting him? For me, no, because, I mean, while he is controversial, as you say, I don't think he's had anything really too disturbing in my personal view. I mean – you know, bad decisions, maybe says some things he shouldn't say, rubs one side wrong way and whatever, you know, unless he's a murderer or, uh, he, you know, he's a Bernie Madoff who stole millions of people, people's innocent money, uh, or innocent people's money. I mean, I'm I'm looking at, (laughs) I'm looking at stuff like that, Adam, you got to me, everybody. No, there are no perfect members of any Hall of Fame. Right. We're all human, and that's part of, I guess, what he's arguing about. Like these writers who are voting on this, they're human too. So some of them have more trouble than others, maybe blocking that stuff out. But for me personally, I'm not. I don't, I'm not in that camp. I mean, like if I was, if I had a vote for the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame today, I would be one of those people voting for Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds. You're saying, oh, Scott, how can you vote for steroid guys? Well, mm-hmm. you know what? Those guys were great players before they, they really got involved and tied to the steroid era. Would their numbers have been as impressive as they ended up being? No. Uh, but I think that they're worthy. If you're going to have a baseball Hall of Fame, you need those guys. And just like Pete Rose. I mean, he's a classic example. Pete Rose, I mean, I know enough. I've read enough about Pete Rose to know that I wouldn't really want him over for dinner. No. I'm not a big fan of Pete Rose, the person, but there is no doubt in my mind that he's one of the greatest baseball players in history, and he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. If that's what it is, a baseball Hall of Fame. Now, if I was putting him in the, to the baseball good guy Hall of Fame, no. I'm putting Dale Murphy in there, yeah. who's not in the regular Hall of Fame and, in my opinion, deserves to be. I put Fred McGriff in there, another guy who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame but isn't. Uh, so, you know, it's just really the lens in which you, you look through what your personal sensibilities are. I just find this all kind of tiring. I mean, it's a baseball hall of fame. 
you'd think these people were voting whether or not to start war with Colombia or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, just it's a lot of it's just stupid. If you want to know my personal opinion, <laughs> a lot of it's just stupid, Adam. <laughs> Well, we don't know exactly who's going to be in the Hall of Fame uh, come this time next week, but we will know more of what's going on with the Gator basketball team. And that's because Chris is on top of things. Make sure to follow him at Gators Chris for the latest on Mike White's squad. And, of course, head over to FloridaGators.com for his content. Scott's as well. You can find him on Twitter at Gators Scott. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Adam. And you won't find either one of us in any Hall of Fame anytime soon. <laughs> On last week's show, we introduced you to Tyree Appleby, and while we're talking about high-impact transfers, it makes sense to learn more about Anthony DeRuji. The 6'7 forward has shown he's tough to put in a box, with the ability to finish around the rim and deliver from long distance. But there's much more to DeRuji outside of his game, as we learned when he opened our chat by sharing his origins. I was born in um, Manhattan, New York. Um, so all my family was born in New York City, um, but I moved to Maryland when I was um, when I was five years old. I moved to Germantown, Maryland. That's where I was raised. Um, I'm the youngest of five kids. Wow. Um, so yeah, big family, um, athletic family as well. My mom uh, played basketball for Nigeria. She represented her country, and she also was a high jumper and uh, did the um, the javelin. And uh, family means a lot to me. Um, like I said, I'm the youngest of five. They're like my biggest supporters, um, and I love them dearly. Um, and I'm just, just love. I'm really like a family guy. Just people mm-hmm. who are like close to me and stuff like that. You said you you were in Manhattan until you were five. How much uh, how much of that New York edge do you get when you leave that young? Did you still get enough of it in in five years? Yeah, uh, I didn't really get too much of it. You know, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, it's like. I consider myself just a, uh, I'm like Maryland. That's where I consider home, you know. Um, obviously, I was born in uh, New York City. You know, uh, it's different out there, you know what I mean? It's, it's a lot of talent, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that rubbed off on me, you know what I mean? And just being able to adapt um, and just being in different scenarios and seeing different type of cultures and stuff like that, you know, so... So for, for basketball, did that come from just your surroundings or was that really from your mom, from your older siblings where it was sort of, you know, you just kind of went into it because they were already doing it? Yeah, that's kind of what happened. Like um, I see my brothers, they all play basketball, you know, and they used to play at the courts in New York. I was too young to play then. But, you know, I always uh, looked up to my older brothers. Um, I have three older brothers and one older sister. You know, so they play basketball and, and, you know, I was just like, you know, one day I told my brother, I want to learn how to play basketball. And then he just started teaching me. So that's kind of where it came about. But I guess you can say, you know, basketball is always kind of ran in the family. Hmm. When did you feel like you, you really took to it? I mean, obviously, at some point you pick up a ball for the first time, but there's another stage where it's like, oh, wow, I'm really good at this. And this is something I want to stick with. When did that moment happen for you? I started playing basketball organized when I was 10 years old, but I started learning how to play when I was eight, you know, so those two years I was just really training with my brother. And when I started playing, I was like, okay, like, you know, I'm, I was kind of like a quick learner once I started playing organized and uh, I seen that I was good, but I think around the age of like 15, um, I started to see like, okay, like I could possibly, I want to like go to college, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. play ball and not have my mom have to pay, you know, and get a scholarship. And so I just, 
you know, seeing my athleticism and uh, like my gifting, I knew it was God given. So that's kind of when I recognized. Well, I know that you were also involved in, in track and field, which is something mm-hmm. else that, that came from uh, from the, the family ties there. Can you talk about your, your track experience and, and how that affected you? Yeah, my track experience was great, man. Um, uh, Coach uh, Robert Youngblood, uh, a guy who I really appreciate a lot. Um, he was my track coach uh, in ninth grade. He's the one who introduced me to track. Um, it was actually, I was in the ninth grade um, and I had went out after the basketball season and I wanted to start doing track. And he was like, uh, he told me you should come out. And I high jumped and he seen that, you know, I had a lot of athleticism and I can jump. So that year I went out, um, did high jump, and I actually qualified for um, states. I didn't do too well, but, you know, I was young and I was just excited and happy to be in a new sport and excelling it, um, you know. So later down the line, I think the next year, my 10th grade year, I um, did track as well. And I started triple jumping mm-hmm. um, and I kind of got pretty well at that. And then. I transferred, I left that school, and I went to St. Andrews where I spent the remainder of my high school career. And my senior year, I actually jumped, like, I think over 49 inches, and I was top 30 in the nation at that point. Um, my coach at St. Andrews, he always just, like, begged me when I first transferred, but I never gave him a shot. But my senior year, I was like, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, you know, I banged out a, a big, big jump. So, yeah, it was really good. So you got to work with me on this, okay? I, I get track and field for the most part. I get like, you know, I've got a javelin. Let me see how far I can throw this thing. I've got a sprint. Let me see how fast I can run. I have never understood the triple jump. Like, how it just seems such, it just seems so unnatural to be like, okay, let me let me do a triple jump and do this whole weird thing. I mean, how do, how do you even get into that? And is it as weird as I think it is? You, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, it does look weird. Like, to the, you know, just looking at it, it's like three jumps. Like, how do right. you do that? You know what I mean? Right. But I think it takes a lot of coordination. Um, and I think that's why um, me being a basketball player was kind of easy to translate. Um, just knowing that we sprint and jump and we're coordinated as well. Um, so it's pretty much you break it down into three phases, um, you know, and that's uh, you want to get out your first phase and then you want to hold the second phase because it's going to pull you into your last phase and then that's like pretty much the last phase of the long jump into the pit um you know so it takes a lot of practice you know I wasn't the best at it at first but once I started getting the hang of things you know I started to uh, excel how much did you think about the Olympics or you know opportunities like that to compete on a a national and, and an international stage yeah um when I was a senior and I jumped that uh uh, when I jumped at uh, 49 uh, inches, um, 49 feet, I mean, excuse me, I actually qualified for the um, USA Junior Nationals um, in Sacramento. Wow. Um, and that was like the longest triple jump since I was born, I think, uh, hmm. since like 1998 in my county. Um, so I was considering it. And I know during one uh, Draper Invitational meet when I broke the triple jump record, uh, there were some Olympians, former Olympians over there. And, uh, I don't know if it was college coaches, but former coaches who were out there. And they were telling me, like, are you sure you're doing the right sport? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, man, I'm just a basketball player, you know. Uh, so I was considering it. Um, I definitely could have went out. And uh, actually, when I first came to Florida, the jumping coaches wanted me to come out and jump here. But, you know, basketball and track just didn't really work out too much. And I had a decision to make. And I just ended up saying, you know, you know, I want to do basketball and that's, that's where I want to, um, that's where I want to excel in. Uh, so I just made that decision and uh, I stuck with it, you know, but 
track is always going to have a special place, you know, in my heart. And I, I love, I love it. And you touched on this, but I'm curious specifically with your track and field skills, how have those helped you on the basketball court? Yeah, I think it's helped me um, just with like my stride. I'm mean, running the open floor, you know, fast breaks. And um, I think it's really helped me um, with my uh, rebounding ability, my ability to get off the floor quick and uh, pretty much just go grab rebounds over people. You know, uh, there's so much explosion and a lot of uh, training and the triple jumping. You have to you have to pop, mm. you know, and I think that's um, that's what track has really helped me with. It's just my bounciness and like my athleticism and also just my endurance because, you know, jumpers are, sp- are sprinters as well. Um, so I did a lot of training just uh, running. Uh, I know basketball was going to be your focus. So when, when you made that decision and you started getting your name out there when you were in high school, what was the recruiting process like? And ultimately, what led you to Louisiana Tech? Yeah, um, so the recruitment process, uh, it was it was an interesting one. I would say, looking back at it, it wasn't really, you know, ideal. Um, I started, I think I got my first offer when I was in, I think, going summer going into the 11th grade, you know, and I got offers and then I had a relationship with a coach who coached me actually for team takeover and pretty much he had got an assistant coach job at Louisiana Tech um, so we kind of had that connection I ended up committing uh, really really early and looking back at it um, you know probably wasn't the most educated thing to do um, but you know it's all part of the process and uh, I've learned from it um, but that's pretty much how like I got to Louisiana Tech they were really showed great interest in me um, and they were one of the first schools to ever offer me. So pretty much looking back at it, I feel as though it was uh, it helped develop me as a person and as a player as well. And I kind of look at it as a stepping stone, you know, just to get me to where I'm at today. Mm-hmm. So when did you decide you wanted to transfer? And then what went into the decision to come to Florida? Why was it the right fit for you at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I decided to transfer because I just wanted something uh, better for me. You know, I excelled at Louisiana Tech for my two years, and I just wanted to be amongst the best, you know, and I wanted to compete amongst the best because I know that's the only way I can get better if I uh, challenge myself and push myself. So during the recruitment process, um, I had watched Florida a lot, and I, everybody knows about the Gators, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what really stuck out to me was the tradition and the legacy. I wanted to be a part of that. Um, I look at Florida as a big fraternity. You know, everywhere you go, you're going to find a Gator. And I know um, the school is just as good as the athletics, and they excel in everything that they do. Um, And it's a high standard. So I just wanted to be a part of that culture and community. And Coach White, of course, he coached at Louisiana Tech before I was there. So I've seen a little connection over there and just how they play and stuff like that. So when I came down on my visit, I knew it was a place that I wanted to be just – from um, the education standpoint, because my mom has always preached to get my education, and as well as basketball too, the best of the best. So that was an easy decision. I know the hardest part of transferring is having to sit out, and you know you know that going in. And I'm sure there's things that happen that you don't expect when you're when you make that decision. Um, but how did you use that time to grow both on and off the court? Yeah, I used that time to really just um, develop. You know, I take time uh, with myself, and I think the biggest thing with me was just uh, things I did in the, in the community mm-hmm. um, and serving. And I think 
I developed more leadership skills. You know, I've always seen myself as a leader, you know, and I know my purpose is bigger than basketball. Um, so giving back is one of my passions. And I feel like, you know, since I sat out last year, I was able to really serve that purpose. And I was able to volunteer at certain schools and in the community and just, uh, you know, be with kids and the youth and try to encourage them and empower them, you know what I mean, to find their passions. I um, mean, just be there for them, try to be a, a person um, who is kind of like a role model, but somebody who, like, similar to them. And I was once in their shoes, you know. Um, so just kind of being humble and um, bringing, myself, um, bringing myself down um, and just being with them. So I think that was uh, really good for me. And um, just soaking in everything, you know, I had to learn a new system. Mm-hmm. You know, I was with a new bunch of guys. Um, it's a new school. Um, everything is just relatively like new because what I was comfortable with, you know, that it's no more. And now I'm at Florida, a bigger school. Um, so I just had to learn everything. I had to be a sponge. Um, but I gave myself time. You know, I, I made a lot of, I guess you can say, mistakes like on the court, not knowing where to be sometimes, or things that seemed very like like they were going very fast. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was all a process. Even having Tyree, who sat out with me, uh, was so good um, because, like, somebody else who's going through it with you. Um, so it wasn't as bad. It kind of went by fast, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Well, and we talked to we talked to Tyree last week. He sort of said the same thing about you. Um, but one thing I think that it's become apparent recently is that that connection you guys built last year. It is really being seen on the court as well in terms mm-hmm. of you know some of the alley oops, the connection mm-hmm. you guys have. How much of that is driven by what happened in the the year prior? Yeah, I think uh, you know we just, me and Tyree we just had that connection because like I said we, we were in the trenches together and we were doing all the you know pregame lifts, um, lifting. And we were when the team was traveling, we couldn't travel. We were just you know on campus like nobody here during the winter break and stuff like that. So I think just being able to pick his brain, um, and, you know, Tyree's a great guy and um, he's an even better uh, teammate. You know what I mean? He's, mm-hmm. he's just very fun to play with. He's just a guy who just who just plays the game. Um, so seeing his highlights, you know, all the great things he did at Cleveland State, you know, I couldn't wait to play with him. And I knew, um, you know, those things come easy to him, like the lobs and just having a knack for the game. He's a true point guard. You know, um, and that's somebody that you, you want to play with. So I knew that was a, that was going to um, manifest itself once we started playing. In terms of the gameplay itself, how different has it been playing in the SEC relative to what you faced in, in Conference USA? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, playing the SEC and playing the Conference USA, the biggest difference is really like size and athleticism. In the Conference USA, you're probably not going to see a lot of um, – really big fives or guys who are like, you know, like Omar. Somebody was like 6'9", 6'10", and is, who's big, but also athletic too. You know what I mean? And freakishly athletic and just long and things like that. So I would say the size and athleticism is like the biggest part. And the physicality of the game is much different. You know, so it's way more physical in the SEC. Not to shoot, Conference USA down, they have a lot of skilled players um, on that level. But I would say the biggest difference is just size and athleticism. Hmm. I know one of the things you were hoping to do in the SEC was play in front of big crowds. Unfortunately, yeah. because of the pandemic, that has not happened. But 
you do have lots of cardboard cutouts. So I'm, I'm yeah. kind of asking, I'm asking everybody I talked to this year, um, who are some of your favorite cardboard cutouts that you've seen in the stands? Uh, let me see. I think Keate. <laughs> I've seen a cutout of him. His is definitely funny. Um, I've seen Noah and Tyrese. I like that. I haven't really paid too much attention to um, a lot of them, but I think I've seen um, Noah and Elijah. Uh, we actually um, adopted Elijah onto our team, mm-hmm. um, and I've seen um, I've seen him. He's a he's a kid of ours. That's really good to see uh, his cutout there. In terms of players that, that you look up to and you try and model your game after, who are some of the names that, that you kind of look to in that sense? Kind of a hard question. I would say Kawhi Leonard, um, Andre Gudala, you know, mm. uh, people who are like two-way players, athletic, and kind of can, can do a little bit of everything. Um, I would say Andre Gudala, looking back in his prime, uh, someone who is a uh, a good comparison, you know, because he's about the same height. Um, he's long, can defend, he can shoot the spot of three, but he could also, you know, pass and um, he could rebound, block shots, just like an all-around player, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. like size type of guy. So, you know, those two, I think, I like watching. I think my game's kind of similar. Hmm. Couple final things for you. You talked earlier about you know the ways that you grew off the court in the last year. And, and I've heard you talk before about you know, the, the protest movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, and how that helped you really find your voice um, off the court. I'm, I'm just curious if you could talk more about your, your experience with that and, and how that's changed you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that experience was, you know, I think it was very big. You know, like I said, my purpose has always uh, been bigger than basketball. And I, and I know that, you know, and I want to use my platform uh, always um, to just empower people um, and also um, just knowing that I'm you know I'm a very uh, faithful man you know believing in God and I've seen how he's brought me to the places that I'm at now so my heart is for the people um, and that's just that's why I play the game of basketball you know what I mean it's, it's to encourage it's to inspire um, and I think you know just throughout those protests um, and everything that we did in the summer that's that's us using our platform, you know, for more and using our platform for change. Um, you know, and that's, that's what we, we all want to see. Um, so that was just really encouraging um, for me. And it was very thankful for, you know, my coaches and the staff to just give us a space like that um, to voice our opinions. Um, you know what I mean? To just share our experiences and share our life with other people. So I was thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Final question for you. We'll bring it back to basketball. I know, you know, each game is sort of its own separate deal and and you can't linger too much on anything, but you guys turned a lot of heads with your performance against Tennessee. So I'm I'm just curious, having a game like that and seeing what you can do when everything clicks and everybody is rowing in the same direction, how much confidence did that give the team about what you're capable of doing the, the rest of the season? Yeah, it gave us a lot of confidence, um, you know what I mean? And it's really good to see that. And it's just like Coach says, um, you know, that's our, that's our standard, the best version of ourselves. And that's what we, we always want to grow each and every day, uh, every game, you know. So to do that, it's like it's really big and it's really encouraging because it shows you that, you know, we can really do this. Um, and I've always believed in our team, and I feel like we have a lot of talented players, even though, you know, Keontae is down. 
who's arguably the best player in the SEC. And then uh, we didn't have Scotty. Um, and we didn't have Colin as well, you know, mm-hmm. key players. Um, but, you know, we can still be really, really good. And we've got a taste of that. So I think we have to keep on staying hungry, keep on staying motivated to, to seek after that. Because uh, I think if we, if we do that and we stay hungry, um, we keep on getting better and then uh, the sky's the roof. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for your time today. We wish you a lot of luck the rest of the season. Okay, thank you, my man. You be easy. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators. Gators.